I think just to temper expectations, I would argue we're still in the middle of a bear market at the moment. And there's still in the traditional macro side that heavily influences Bitcoin and crypto prices. Hello, and welcome to The Crypto Brief, a podcast from the Fidelity Center for Applied Technology. Every week, we get together to discuss current events and trends in blockchain technology, tokenization, DeFi, NFTs, mining, and related aspects of the crypto ecosystem. I'm your co-host, Ryan Stubbe, Director of Bitcoin Mining, and I'm joined by Jason Ward, Head of the Blockchain Incubator, Parth Gargava, Product Architect within Fidelity Labs, and Jack Newrider, Research Analyst with Fidelity Digital Assets. Before we begin, just a friendly reminder that this discussion is for educational purposes only and should not be viewed as investment advice or a recommendation for any security or asset. The views expressed are those of the co-hosts and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. As we all know, digital assets are speculative and highly volatile and are only for those investors with a high risk tolerance. So let's dive into what's been happening recently. Hey guys. What up? How are you? Doing great. It's been a few weeks since we've all been together. I know I'm ready to roll. We were uh, we were we were um, on break last week um, in a reservance for um, Juneteenth, and you know we hope that everyone was able to to tune into the uh, to the recording with uh, Maggie Love that um, we did. That was a, a great discussion. Um, and I guess just a, a point of housekeeping: um, we're going to be um, on break again next week for Fourth um, of July uh, in the U.S. But We'll catch you, uh, catch you the week after. But um, I think we should just jump right in because it has been a couple of weeks and there's been a lot of news. And Parth, we know you were away last week at a hackathon. So kind of want to hear a little bit about that too, um, just because I feel like those types of forums are really good kind of leading indicators around kind of where people are spending their time and kind of what the, what the general sentiment is. But I think th- there's a couple of different topics we wanted to cover today, right? So first that, but also I think the news that's been dominating the last few weeks is, is just ETFs, ETFs, ETFs. Of course, <laughs> we saw BlackRock file for a spot Bitcoin ETF. Um, and then following that, we saw a slew of, of applications and refiles. Um, and I think that has led to kind of a, a really strong narrative around just how sentiment in the market is starting to change, you know, and again, like it, the last few weeks has felt a little bit different. I, I don't know how you guys feel, um, but or if it's just the fact that it finally feels like summer in New England. But I, I think like people, there's there's just a more positive air uh, in the last few weeks. Um, and I, I definitely want to want to dig into that a bit more with you. Yeah, it's definitely still a bear market, but there's a lot happening underneath the surface to talk about. And it did feel like if we go back like three or four you know, a couple of months ago, we were kind of in no man's land. And even like talking weekly, we were like, all right, what are we going to talk about this week? And there, there wasn't a lot going on. Now there's a, a lot of stories trickling in. And yeah. Happening. Yeah. And there's some other like, in, you know, market infrastructure, market maturity, things that we want to talk about. Um, and then the, the other big thing in the last few weeks um, is, is Uniswap V4. Um, Parth, I know you're really excited about this. So I want to I want to dig into that uh, a little bit with you. Um, but I, I guess before we, we jump into to the news, maybe can we just hear a little bit about your, your recent trip um, and kind of what you what you did uh, over the last few weeks? Yeah, of course. I feel like um, while you were making that comment about how cyclical news is in crypto, I feel like you also have to be kind of stoic because the last two months were all about despair. And now you just have this overarching theme of uh, our institutions back again, right? So, so I think it's it's uh it's almost hilarious, but uh, yeah, I was at a week long hackathon. It was really fun, almost therapeutic, I would say for me, because uh, it's kind of my way of just zoning out of work 
and just having a good time going deep into uh, pushing boundaries. A lot of the projects that you do at these hackathons are, I wouldn't say they are pragmatic and they cannot be used for the next like three to five years, right? So they are more pushing the envelope, uh, more focused on uh, on aspects which you would not, which would normally not be application centric. Uh, so I, I worked on this project called uh, Anonymous Credential Voting Systems. Uh, so that that's what I did. So yeah, and I think it's an interesting point, right? Because the the relationship between academia and crypto, I've always found fascinating, right? Because um, a lot of the concepts are very academic, right? And and and, and theoretical, and and you know, I think we, we've started, you know, obviously in the last. I would say five plus years, you've seen industry and, and, you know, the private sector start to embrace the technology, of course, right? Um, Maybe even 10 years. But um, I'm curious, like, what do you, what do you think, you know, given the current state of the market, what is academia's role going to be in this industry? And like, you know, how do you, how do you see that playing out over maybe the next few years? Yeah, no, I think that's a really loaded question. Because when you think about it, the job of academia is to think about what's what's next, what's five years out from now, and almost build uh, the railroads for what can happen in the next three to four years. So maybe just to give you an example, I, I didn't really go deep into it, but the project that I'm working was I was working on was uh, anonymous credential voting systems. And just to give you sort of an example, the the problem that I was trying to solve was that how do you prove anonymously that you are a fan of the crypto brief? Uh, without telling anyone that you are a fan of the crypto brief. And then once you prove that, how do you get to vote on proposals? So so just to give an example, let's say if people are saying, hey, we, we are sick of Parth, we want him out. How can I <laughs> how can I vote in, in a way by saying that, hey, I, I have a reputation that I am a fan of the crypto brief, but at the same time, uh, I want to propose or I want to make this proposal to kick one person out and then have a privacy preserving voting system. Now, mm-hmm. no one's going to use it for the next three years. Like, I'm pretty sure this is not going to be applicable for the next three years. So you're safe for the next three years, is what you're saying. <laughs> I guess so. But, yeah. but, but essentially, the idea is to really test boundaries of voting system. And uh, voting system is kind of like that holy grail of, of a computer science problem on how can I vote anonymously, but at the same time, making sure that people are not bribed, it's done in a fair and just manner. Uh, yeah. So that's what I focused on. Yeah, I, I, the voting use case has always been really fascinating to me. And I think that is a good example because that is one area where I think like, you know, market penetration is going to be extremely difficult, right? Because the way, even the way that we think about voting in this country and, and in other countries and, right. you know, how manual it is and the amount of checks and balances, right? Like that's a market behavior that is likely going to be very hard to, to change. But I think if the, the technology over time can prove itself, right? I think the, the opportunity there is going to be, uh, you know, quite significant. I think that this this hackathon you're at is biannual or annual? It's annual. So I've been doing this for the last five years, uh, but and it's super fun. So the market has changed like quite a bit since since the last uh, since the last hackathon. Any um, any like sentiment or consensus on kind of how the the industry moves forward from where we are now, just given the events of the last year? So I would say it's not highly dependent on what happened last year, but when you think about the the themes in 2018 and 2019 in the last bear market people were just focusing on scalability and interoperability so people would say hey blockchains do not scale uh, they are not interoperable and that narrative has kind of changed now so you have a lot of layer twos like optimism arbitrum zk sync 
and people have this sort of soft consensus that there is enough effort being taken into consideration on scalability. And so the new overarching theme that I'm seeing, uh, which would be probably dominant in the next two years, is privacy. Uh, in fact, Vitalik came out with this blog post uh, talking about the transitions uh, which would be needed uh, in Ethereum. Uh, uh, and I see a lot of these new projects which are solely focused on having the same functionality that Ethereum can do, but in a private manner. That's really interesting. Um, well, I'm glad that we have people like you that are able to attend events like this to kind of keep the finger on the pulse and and, and bring it back to fidelity. So um, that's, that's great. Um, and I know you also, maybe that last week you did, but uh, there was also on maybe last week you tried, right? Um, and, and maybe we have a bit of a call to action for everyone on today. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that? So this is something which is really interesting and uh, this requires full attention of the audience, right? Um, so, so this is kind of a different last week I tried uh, protocol. So I know while I was out, uh, you and, and Jack were talking about EIP 4844 or protodank sharding which is kind of the next big upgrade on Ethereum. And what is that? Just for people who don't know. Absolutely. So the whole idea of protodank sharding is to make the cost of settling on Ethereum cheaper. So you can get transaction fee further down. Uh, so if you think about uh, using an Arbitrum or an Optimism, if you are in a bull market, the transaction fee can actually go up to $1, which is horrible, right? Because you're still paying a dollar for basic transactions. And so Ethereum is going through this change of protodank sharding. And in order to do that, they have to go through this change of changing the signature scheme, right? And so I know this might sound slightly complex, but in order to change the signature scheme, they have to have this ceremony called a trusted setup, right? And so in order to get this trusted setup, I know there are like a lot of in orders, but like in order to get this trusted setup, you have this huge random number which has to be generated by the community, by people like us who participate in the community. So it's on us to provide that randomness or that entropy. And so uh, the, the sort of assignment that I wanna give to people in the audience is that if you go to ceremony.ethereum.org, all you have to do is you click on begin and then add some sort of secret name that you wanna put. So the idea is to add entropy or randomness uh, to, uh, to the next uh, EIP 4844. So I'm just going to say Ryan as my secret, right? And then once I do that, I move my mouse around just to add more randomness. And once you do this for maybe four or five seconds, you click on submit and that's it. And now you actually, for the first time, um, participated in an open source project and you contributed to the next big upgrade of Ethereum. That's really neat. Yeah, it's a way that everyone can, uh, can contribute to open source, I guess. Exactly. And it literally took me like five seconds. I feel like a lot of people are not exposed to the universe of contributing to an open source project. And this mm. would be the best way to start. And how many of those 12,000 submissions are yours? <laughs> <laughs> you, you don't get any benefit for submitting. There are, there are no airdrops. So I, I just did it once. But I would say that uh, it's a fun process. If you want to do it, go to ceremony.ethereum.org. Uh, and you don't need a wallet. You don't need anything. You just have to move your mouse. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, all right, let's jump in because I think this is going to be the kind of the bulk of the conversation today. So 
as I mentioned, you know, week before last, we saw BlackRock submit uh, application for a spot Bitcoin ETF. Um, obviously, this has been, you know, more or less the holy grail of investment products, right? For crypto, we've seen a lot of companies over the last two years try and get this approved through the SEC, um, uh, and to, to no avail. You know, we've seen lots of uh, rejections or withdrawals, um, but the market seems to think that. BlackRock doing this maybe is an indicator, right, of of um, a change in sentiment at the SEC or amongst market participants, um, and then I think that has kind of led to a whole new discussion around kind of what the what the um, the next chapter looks like for institutional adoption of this space. So, Jack, can you just kind of maybe give us some high level background on you know what this what the market is now saying around this and and, and what we think some of the um some of the ripple effects may be yeah definitely and so i think it's been sort of in the last two weeks or so ever since really we got the the blackrock etf filing um and then sort of a wave of refiles from other names so we got blackrock to file for an etf which would be the assets would be custodied by coinbase uh, the ETF itself would trade on NASDAQ, and then there would be uh, some type of s- surveillance sharing agreement, uh, according to the, you know, the, the filing, where NASDAQ would be able to have some insight into some of the trading going on on Coinbase, uh, which in BlackRock or Coinbase's view uh, is trying to clear up some of the SEC's concerns around uh, spot market manipulation. Uh, I think the important thing there is whether or not uh, the SEC would be in agreement with the fact that uh, this would be a market of significant size, right? And so the idea behind being able to surveil these markets, I think some of the the pushback has been the fact that a lot of Bitcoin's spot market trading happens on Binance and on these offshore exchanges, right? 50, 60% of volume is is Binance alone. um, And then a number of other, you know, sort of unregulated or not regulated by the United States uh, exchanges where a lot of the spot market trades. Now, this comes at a time where we still have the grayscale GBTC ETF conversion lawsuit against the SEC, in which grayscale is pushing back against the SEC, denying them being able to convert their grayscale Bitcoin trust into a spot ETF. And the, the pushback from grayscale there is that Futures funds were launched not only under the Investment Company Act of 1940, uh, which has sort of necessarily less investor protections, but also there was a a filing by Tecrium that was approved, I believe, earlier this year under the 1933 Act. And that's what these spot ETFs have to be filed under. And so we're still waiting to hear uh, sort of some of the outcomes of the the Grayscale lawsuit. That's expected to to maybe uh, hear back in the fall. Uh, following some oral arguments back in March of this year. And so, you know, some are saying BlackRock filed uh, at a time when the grayscale lawsuit to convert to an ETF, we might get some sort of uh, resolution or at least uh, hear back about, you know, what's the latest on that case come the fall, which is only a few months away now. We're already in the summer of, of 2023 here. And so that has led to a wave of refiles from I have a list of four, uh, Bitwise, Galaxy and Invesco together, uh, Valkyrie and Wisdom Tree, all refiled within the last two weeks since BlackRock filed. 
And so now we we kind of have uh, some some sort of renewed optimism around the potential for Bitcoin ETF launches. Again, nobody really knows here, I think. Um, it, but what we've also seen is the Grayscale Trust, the discount to its net asset value, uh, which is basically uh, the fact that Grayscale is not an ETF. And so if there's more people that want to sell it, uh, which has been the case over the past you know, two years, uh, the only way that they can sell it on the secondary market is to sell it at a discount relative to the actual assets that are held in the trust. And so it's traded at a deeper and deeper discount uh, over really the, the past two years or so uh, to the point where I think that discount on on the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust pushed you know close to 50% at its low. Just two weeks ago, it was a 44% discount relative to the assets held in the trust. And now we've seen you know some upward pressure and some upward price movement in the Bitcoin trust relative to its net assets, where it's still at a 33% discount as we're speaking here today. But again, quite a quite a move upwards, um, which is what you would expect, because if that trust is able to convert to an ETF, well, then there's an arbitrage there, because what will happen is either hedge funds and, and um, those in the market are, see it as an arbitrage where they could either short Bitcoin or they could take the, the price risk on Bitcoin if they wanted to and own the Bitcoin trust. And then it will trade at NAV uh, one way or another. Either enough people will buy it up because they know it will convert to an ETF or uh, they'll they'll sell and redeem the Bitcoin underlying the trust to buy back the shares so that it trades at NAV. Again, that's assuming if it was able to convert to an ETF. And so we can look at that as a price signal for whether or not the market becomes more optimistic about Grayscale converting or less optimistic. And at the moment, over the past two weeks, it's become more optimistic with this wave of filings. Jack, I have a quick comment uh, and I want to ask you this question, but when I think about it, Grayscale were kind of the pioneers who pushed boundaries with the SEC to to try and get a Bitcoin ETF approved. But it seems like you have these new financial institutions, obviously, I mean, these like super mature financial institutions coming in, which might benefit more. Uh, not to speculate on what the SEC wants to do, but do you feel like there is this growing tide or sentiment against the SEC and, and their recent enforcements, which might have maybe prompted some of these policymakers or big institutions to to come in and build registered products. Yeah, I mean it's certainly you know speculative to to make a call one way or another. Um, but at the moment, I think it's certainly telling the number of tradfi institutions that even over the past couple of weeks have have sort of stepped in um, and and pushed for ETFs, or I think we're going to talk about the EDX exchange, um, all of these kind of movements that are happening from these TradFi institutions that on their traditional business side, they're all regulated by the SEC and whatnot, and they're playing by the existing rules of the game in TradFi. And to, you know, to some degree, it makes sense that uh, the SEC and other regulators want to replicate that for these markets, but you've had all of these crypto native players that would have to be pulled into that regulatory regime versus TradFi players that already live in that regime, uh, sort of building products that look very similar to what they have on the traditional side in the crypto space. And we're starting to see that kind of happen at the same time as there's some lawsuits from the SEC against crypto native players that maybe haven't been regulated or have lived on the, the fringes or the gray area of 
what's you know regulatory compliance and what's not. Yeah, and I think I think that's a great point. I, I the other thing I would point out again, you know, there where there could be maybe some relationship drawn path is, you know, in these lawsuits that we now have some clarity as to how the SEC is thinking about, you know, assets um, as it pertains to securities law, right? So you have Bitcoin, which is now 50% of the market and Ethereum, which is like 19% of the market. And it's generally viewed that those assets for now are, are quote unquote safe, right? And so to see people rallying around building products associated with those two assets, I think makes sense because you have, you know, of course, all of these alts that are now likely, you know, be going to be viewed by the SEC as unregistered securities, right? And so when you think about, you know, institutions that are, you know, in the game or looking to get into the game, Bitcoin, you know, seems like a logical first step into this into the space, right? Because again, you have relative comfort in, in understanding that it's designated as a commodity and that's probably not going to change, right? And and all of the the associated kind of rules of the road that are going to come along with it. So I think that that to me is another piece where you know we're starting to see more clarity um, via these lawsuits for better or for worse, um, as to how the SEC is viewing the market, right? And I think um, the a big function probably of the activity that we're now seeing is the fact that um, these institutions are able to survey um, survey the, the risks associated with dealing with any of these individual assets and, and make a decision based on that, whether they want to get involved. So maybe, I guess another question would be, what happens to exchanges, right? So a lot of people, close to 85% people who buy cryptocurrencies, uh, buy that to just get some exposure or speculate on the asset. So what happens to a lot of these businesses which have uh, an exchange and that was the only way you could get exposure to Bitcoin? Do you have any any thoughts there? I mean, I, I think as the like traditional regulatory apparatus comes into play in this space, then that opens the door for TradFi institutions to come in and compress margins. Right. Like how many people are used to paying anywhere from one to two and a half percent all in fees between you know the spreads and commissions that you're paying on these you know crypto platforms? That's not the norm on the equity side, right? I mean, now we're everywhere's pretty much commission free to trade equities uh, versus on the crypto side. You know, that's not the case with you know Bitcoin, ETH, and and the tokens that TradFi institutions may be able to support, I think you're going to see you know, fee compression there. And then to the point of having a, a registered you know, investment vehicle, an ETF, which is you know, ultimately what the industry wants is a spot Bitcoin ETF. I do think that that then potentially changes the need for the desire for people to trade other tokens just because it's a simple way for people to get exposure with a, a blanket you know, Bitcoin exposure, that's that's the Pareto's principle, uh, the 80-20 of just, you know, owning just some Bitcoin, it's a proxy for crypto, uh, and, and you're kind of all done and you don't need a separate relationship with a, a crypto native custodian and you don't have to think about private keys, you can just throw it in your portfolio or for an advisor, you can throw it in your model portfolios if you want exposure. And then ETF, well, it could hold the S&P 500 or it could hold Bitcoin. And so in inside of those existing model portfolios, a lot of the integration pieces that don't exist for owning spot Bitcoin and Ethereum, all of that would go away if you have 
the traditional investment product that can just get you exposure um, for, for investment managers. Because a lot of times, some of the issues is, okay, if I'm only putting 2% of a client's portfolio in these assets, which is the majority of you know, advisors that are considering exposure because it's a very volatile asset class. It's a very small percentage. But if I have to spend 10% of my time as an advisor <laughs> on figuring out how to own Bitcoin, how to rebalance it, like yeah. all of that, it just creates such a headache. And it's all these frictional costs as well as just like time suck uh, that it's not even worth it versus if it lives in a traditional investment product, it's way easier to press some buttons uh, and get that exposure than building separate relationships with other entities, et cetera. Yeah. So, so I, I want to switch gears and talk about Uniswap, but before we do that, it's been relatively bullish, right? On, on crypto and on just kind of the state of the market, Jack, any, any counter argument or narrative that you're tracking, um, that maybe will bring us back down to earth a little bit here. Yeah. I mean, I, I, so, so to, to counterbalance, what I would say is we're seeing traditional players building infrastructure in the space. And typically, you wouldn't expect people to be building infrastructure in a space that they don't think is going to exist a few years down the line. These things take time and resources and energy that could be spent elsewhere. And so that's like the positive piece that we're talking about. I think the the sort of bearish side of this discussion is one, you know, just because BlackRock and everybody refiles doesn't necessarily mean that an ETF's being approved. And there's been no indication you know, from the SEC that that anything has changed from their viewpoint. Two is the macro backdrop, which still hasn't necessarily changed. We have, you know, we're in a higher interest rate regime at the moment, and we have a lot of, you know, interesting data uh, on the econ side, sort of both in both directions um, from the inflation and deflation camps. But we're still waiting on uh, sort of the impacts of raised interest rates, which began in March of last year. Those take 12 to 18 months to start to kick in as people refinance debt. Um, and we're still not, we haven't gotten through that. And so Bitcoin only lived in the period of quantitative easing and monetary and fiscal policy intervention. We are getting some of the opposite of that, which is hawkish policy from Jerome Powell and the Federal Reserve. Um, and so I think just to temper expectations, I would argue we're still in the middle of a, a bear market at the moment, and uh, they're still in the traditional you know, macro side that heavily influences Bitcoin and crypto prices. And I still think there's a lot of question marks uh, that sit there, especially in the next like six to 12 months. To me, it's almost hilarious that you, when you said it takes around 12 to 18 months to get the, the repercussions of an interest market, which is higher. But when I think about DeFi, it's, it's usually days. Like I remember <laughs> how Aave lending protocols interest changes were like done maybe at the beginning of this year, uh, but uh, talks of, tells you more about how adaptive or how fast uh, DeFi is. Yeah, the is. feedback cycle, right? Yeah. Yeah, and in the six to 12 month window that you're talking about, we also have the next halving coming up, right? That those tend to be fairly seismic events, so that's, um, at least in the. I think that's a great point, too, is yeah. we've seen historically uh, Bitcoin's halving moves in four year cycles, and Bitcoin was created during the financial crisis, right? It spawned in 2009. Its halvings came 20. 12 and then 2016 and then 2020 and then 2024 well we had the we had covid in 2020 and so we had monetary and fiscal policy intervention at that time period uh, and we've had sort of these four-year cycles uh which have also ironically aligned with the halving cycle of bitcoin mm -hmm. where you get a ratcheting effect of 
Bitcoin's issuance schedule, you know, getting cut in half at the same time as what has happened uh, sort of ironically, just by by chance, is we've had central bank uh, policy intervention and, and some major fiscal spending that have happened to coincide in these four year kind of liquidity cycles not because of anything Bitcoin is doing, just by sheer chance. Um, and some things are, are kind of lining up like that could potentially happen in 2024 again, um, depending on where things go over the next 12 months. I mean, that's highly speculative, but it wouldn't be all that surprising to see that cycle play out again where, okay, now we're in the other side of these rate cycle hikes. Um, we haven't seen it necessarily show up in, in equity prices uh, all that extremely. Um, I don't know. It's it, it's interesting to to watch going forward, but yeah, yeah. So certainly that is the uh, the maybe the trad fi side of the infrastructure. Yeah, I just I just wanted to say it's not all sunshine and rainbows. Yeah, no, and I I think that's important to maintain. You know, yeah, maintain perspective on that as as we move forward. Um, so let's let's talk about another uh, piece of really cool and important market infrastructure. So um, also in the last two weeks, Uniswap coming out um, or announcing plans for V4, right? Um, and so Parth, I guess the, the question for you is, you know, of course, what is it, right? But I guess even more important is, is why does it matter, right? To, to DeFi and to, to the crypto markets. So I think an important starting point would be uh, what Uniswap is, right? So when you think about DeFi, the first protocol that comes to your mind is Uniswap, right? And so Uniswap is obviously known for its simplistic UI, simplistic design. And the whole idea of Uniswap is to exchange tokens and add liquidity to any kind of token pair. So it may seem pretty normal now, but I remember when it first came out in 2018, uh, I actually started using it in 2020, but when it first came out, it was a true innovation. And I, I believe Vitalik had a blog post uh, on how one can execute an automated market maker. Uh, and that was then executed by Hayden just as a side project. So the whole idea of Uniswap is anyone can create a liquidity pool permissionlessly, and that unlocks trading any sort of token pair, right? So I could create a liquidity pool in under five minutes between Jackcoin and Ryancoin. And if there is a demand and value, then someone can trade a Ryancoin for a Jackcoin. That, that was kind of the whole idea. So typically in traditional markets, as a market maker, you try to match the buyer with the seller, right? And as a user, you also want to create limit orders. Uh, but here was this new concept, which was Uniswap, where you could trade tokens instantly. But the holy grail for Uniswap has always been going to that point where you could have an advanced trading system, which kind of emulates traditional finance exchanges. So when you think about V1, um, Uniswap V1 was pretty much you can trade ETH with any ERC-20 token, right? So I could trade ETH with Aave, Uni, whatever token. Uniswap V2 is actually when I first uh, used Uniswap. This was right in May or June uh, during the pandemic. And uh, that's when you could trade any sort of token, any ERC-20 token with another ERC-20 token. Um, and then you had Uniswap V3, which is something which a lot of people use. And the idea of Uniswap V3 is about concentrated liquidity, right? So you can set a price range in which your liquidity exists. So the unique, unique part about Uniswap V3 is that instead of having a single liquidity pool for each token pair, you could have multiple pools for different price ranges, right? And so a lot of people are trying to wrap their heads around Uniswap V3, even though it's been around, uh, it's been around for the last two, two and a half years. 
But the TLDR is that if you use Uniswap V3, it's just a way of saying you get better bang for your buck since there is less slippage. Capital efficiency, right? Exactly. So instead of getting to the precise point of having a limit order, now you have a price range and you can choose that price range by yourself. Uh, and so V3 kind of came close to a traditional exchange, which has limit orders in the form of price ranges and then minimal slippage, right? But then V4 goes deeper into that. Uh, and so that's something which I'm super excited about. Uh, but before I go into V4 um, features, I quickly want to talk about, and again, this is my perspective, but I have observed this uh, overarching theme where a lot of these big DeFi protocols are not creating products anymore. So they are creating platforms. When you think about Lens, which is a social media layer, they're building the railroads for a social media application, a killer social media application that gets them traction. Or you have Eigenlayer, which is another DeFi protocol uh, for, and it's a platform for different consensus protocols. You have account abstraction, which we've spoken about. Coinbase is building Base, which is again, another platform. They are betting on the fact that someone will build a product, which is gonna be killer. Or MetaMask has snaps. And that's the same approach that Uniswap V4 um, has taken. Does, does that make this helpful? I think that's a really interesting observation and one that maybe we've experienced before, as we know, and I've said a million times on this podcast, bear markets are for building, right? And I think products are very hard to launch in a market like this, whereas these kind of times of market downturn are a really great opportunity to build foundational capabilities. And that's where we've seen people, based on the conversation before this, whether it's a traditional financial market, TradFi product, or something like this, it's a fundamental piece of infrastructure that can be used for the kind of next wave of adoption and products to be built on top of, right? And so I think it makes sense and it certainly is definitely interesting. I think reassuring that you're continuing to see investment and time and resources be made in right. these areas. Absolutely. And I think the beauty of Uniswap v4 is that people can choose their adventure, right? So they can choose the level of complexity for their automated market maker, right? And so I guess the question is, why is this important for the audience, right? So the people who are listening in, there will come a time where most folks in this audience will use an exchange to either trade tokens or trade real estate or exchange some sort of value. Uh, and Uniswap wants to capture that entire market, right? So And so I'll kind of go deeper into what Uniswap v4 features are, but that's, that's sort of the hot take where essentially they want you to choose whether you want a simplistic exchange or you want something which is more advanced, more for degening. And, and mm. so at this point, Uniswap is trying to go as horizontal as possible, um, uh, especially for uh, any sort of on-chain trading. So yeah, let, let, let's maybe talk a little bit about what's changing because I do think that that's important. And I'm curious to get your thoughts on kind of how that falls uh, in relation to that, right? Are we are we talking more about enhancements to the user experience? Is it you know for more sophisticated investors or more you know you know simplistic, basically um, less experienced uh, crypto investors? Um, you know, are there any like you know benefits beyond the user experience? Yeah. So th there are actually two big things. One is more related to user experience, and the second one is more for sophisticated users. So the first part is Uniswap v4 is going to be massively gas efficient, right? So in order to create a new liquidity pool position in v3, you have to deploy a new contract and that's really expensive. Or if I'm someone who's just trading one coin for another, so if I'm swapping Ryan coin for Jack coin, 
chances are that I have to hop between a lot of these different pools. And whenever you do something which is more multi-hop, that costs you gas, right? Mm. And that makes your trade expensive. And Uniswap V4 will get rid of that. So now your transactions or your trades can be done much cheaper since you're not hopping into different contracts. So that's one huge point about user Which would benefit, arguably would benefit you know, it, sophisticated investors and, you know, m you know, re retail investors as well. I, I think it, it, it benefits the, re the retail investors more because sophisticated uh, players already have their ways of how they can optimize gas. But it, for an average person who just wants to buy, convert their ETH into Uniswap tokens, uh, it just it, it's now going to be cheaper. But okay. I think the second thing which I'm most excited about is the introduction of something called as hooks or callbacks which are essentially like plugins. So now with Uniswap v4, you can introduce any sort of arbitrary logic in the life cycle of a swap or a trade. So when I'm placing an order on Uniswap, I can say, hey, before I swap my ETH for, for Jackcoin, make sure that the price of ETH is at least $1,000. Otherwise, do not execute the trade. Or make sure that the price of my ETH is coming from a trusted data source or, or make sure that my trade happens only when the fee percentage is less than 1%, right? So that's kind of the idea of hooks, which is how can I make the life cycle of a trade more customizable? And the question is, who's going to build these hooks, right? Uh, and the answer is us, the people, right? So I can, I almost imagine this marketplace where you'll have a bunch of these hooks built by many developers. Uh, and then um, it's almost like you're building a platform for hooks and the, the the bigger ones, the more prevalent ones get used even more. Uh, so that's kind of the TLDR. Uni Uniswap in this scenario is basically saying we have the liquidity, build what you want uh, to plug into us with and bring the people. Yes. Bring the volume. Exactly. <laughs> I'm just curious with, with hooks, that all sounds really cool and really sophisticated and and really complicated, right? And so I wonder, you know, as we've as we've experienced, you know, generally speaking, the more complicated the code, the higher the probability that something goes wrong. So, are there any concerns around like the security and stability, um, particularly when you're open sourcing, you know, more or less uh, development on these things? There, there is hundred percent. So I almost imagine this market where you have a lot of big trusted companies which will have their own hooks, which are verified and they become more, more prevalent than others. But on the other side, you can have, you have this scope for sketchy hooks, right? Which also increase the chances of rug pulls. And so mm -hmm. the way I think about it is it's, it's almost like Uniswap is trying to build the app store and then you will have a lot of these applications or you will have a lot of these engineers building applications on top of it. Or maybe, you know what, scratch that. Uh, it's, it's almost like Uniswap will be the Google Chrome and you have a bunch of Chrome extensions and you get to choose which ones are more important and which ones are not. And, yeah. the, and the security of those hooks comes based on how many people are using those extensions. So just to kind of keep that analogy going, um, you know, the App Store, I think actually probably is a pretty good analogy. Uh, Chrome is also, I think, a good comparison. But in those in those instances, you have a central entity that's taking a look at the apps that, or the you know, code that's being contributed <laughs> and saying, yes, this can go or, or no, this cannot go. Right. It sounds like 
based on based on your reaction just now that uh, Uniswap probably doesn't have right. a plan for that and you know probably it runs counter to the decentralization aspect of things. Maybe um, I would I would recalibrate. So it's almost like the Google Play Store where anyone can deploy anything, <laughs> and then you have this like informal uh, reputation system where you know which hooks are better than others. But I think the, yeah. the the TLDR of this latest upgrade is that on-chain trading is going to look very close to what Binance or a lot of these advanced trading platforms offer. Uh, and that's all going to be because of the possibility of hooks. Um, mm -hmm. So that's something which I'm really excited about, which is getting on-chain trading as sophisticated and as efficient as you see in centralized exchanges. And a frictionless user experience. Yeah. Well, no, I, I mean, you know, to your point, I think the evolution of Uniswap has been really interesting to watch. I think, you know, at one point it was really all command lined. Um, and now, you know, it's starting to inch closer and closer to mass market um, through the addition of all of these capabilities. So um, I think, you know, certainly will be interesting to watch as will be, you know, how it how it um, performs and, and is utilized with comparison to some of the centralized um, exchanges, given that they're getting closer and closer to being direct competitors. And and just to tie maybe Uniswap with uh, some of the things going on in TradFi, this is you know the the middle of a bear market at the moment, and you have infrastructure being built on chain from folks like Uniswap and some of these platforms, and then you have the off chain now traditional players that appear to be stepping in. And I think ultimately, if you look on like kind of a longer five or ten year time scale. That's probably how this industry matures and grows, is having traditional large players where institutions can be involved in the space and then having you know, the actual on-chain applications themselves that are you know, fully transparent and auditable by anybody versus what we just came out of or are you know, still kind of winding out of over the past five years or so of opaque uh, under-regulated or offshore entities that are trusted to hold those assets. Um, that's so, a, that's a great way to end it. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And um, thank you both. This was a great discussion. Uh, a lot to catch up on this week. Um, just as a reminder, I know we covered it at the top, um, but we will be on break next week uh, for the 4th of July holiday in the U.S. Um, but we uh, look forward to seeing you back here in uh, two weeks. Um, if you're in the U.S., um, we hope that you have a, a happy 4th. We'll see you all soon. Digital assets are speculative and highly volatile, can become illiquid at any time, and are only for those investors willing to risk losing some or all of their investment and who have the experience and ability to evaluate the risks and merits of an investment. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast was produced by Fidelity Center for Applied Technology, also known as FCAT. FCAT does not offer digital assets nor provide clearing or custody of such assets. It is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide tax, legal, insurance, or investment advice and should not be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation for any security or other asset by any fidelity entity or any third party. Views expressed are as of the date indicated based on the information available at the time and may change based on market or other conditions. Unless otherwise noted, the opinions provided are those of the authors and not necessarily 
necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. Fidelity does not assume any duty to update any of the information. Fidelity and any other third parties mentioned in the podcast are independent entities and not affiliated. Mentioning them does not suggest a recommendation or endorsement by Fidelity. This information is not intended for distribution to or used by any person or entity in any jurisdiction or country where such distribution or use would be contrary to local law or regulation. Persons accessing this information are required to inform themselves about and observe such restrictions. Third-party trademarks appearing herein are the property of the respective owners. All others are the property of FMR LLC. Copyright 2023. FMR LLC. All rights reserved. 1040156.